I have an announcement to make before we get into uh, our scripture reading this morning. I will be doing the reading and the prayer. Uh, the announcement is that we have a, uh, a group coming next Sunday, the 12th. Roy West Country Music Ministries, okay? And they were here last year. I don't know if some of you were here and remember seeing them, I think February about a year ago. And uh, they have a, a wonderful ministry that uh, uh, deals with sharing God's word and uh, through music and, uh, and through, his, uh, through the scriptures. And they were, they were a delight to us last year, so I hope, uh, hope everyone will tell some friends and bring them and come and uh, listen to the gifts and the talent that God has granted to, to these men to share uh, through their music and through their gifts of the musical instruments to uh, convey the truths of God's word and rejoice and worship in them. Uh, with that said, when I give you the scripture that I'm going to be reading, I would like any in here to know that if they feel like they need to be seated for illness or any infirm condition like that, please uh, don't hesitate to remain in your seat and be comfortable. You know, this is, this is perfectly acceptable. You know, it's a, a matter of our heart, not our posture. Yet. So understand that, please. So if you would, go to the book of Ephesians. And this is where we're going to be reading the gospel in the first chapter. And if you will, open it and stand with me, please. Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. And I will be starting in verse 13 of Ephesians chapter 1. And in Christ you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of God's glory. And for this reason, writes Paul, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, Remembering in your, my, you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in his son Jesus Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above all and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also and the one to come, and he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things 
to the church, which is the body, the fullness of him, of which he fills all in all. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, enrich our minds this morning, open our hearts and, and uh, the pathways of our, our whole being, Lord, that we may know and understand uh, not only the beauty and majesty and sovereignty of your scriptures, but the truth that's contained within them that brings us forth to the understanding of Jesus and all that is called for us to do and to say and to know to hear and to act upon. We ask this in his name this morning. Amen. Amen. Well, it's a new year, isn't it? How many resolutions broken already? Uh, I think I read some statistics somewhere that it was uh, like by March the 15th, about 92% of ever every one made has been broken by that period of time or modified or whatever it may be. Anyway, I, uh, our culture is, is steeped into these things related to uh, newness, you know, new year, new resolution, you know, uh, Tide soap comes in new pods and it's new and better and then your cars are new and everything. This is a new age and a new period of time. And subsequently, we think that everything that has to be new has to be good. It doesn't necessarily mean it isn't. But there are some things that have stood the test of time. And certainly those are the things that we need to consider ourselves in the relationship to what we are and who we are in Christ Jesus. And the one thing that we set that stands out here above most and all is this book called the Bible. What do you know about it? What do you care about it? What does it say? What's the story? What position in life does it have in your life? Is it God's word? And to whom does it speak? It's interesting if you just take a look at the Bible itself and you read nothing but the first few verses of Genesis and the last few verses of the book of Revelation in chapter 22. It conveys to us, God said, let there be light. How does God say? He speaks. He does not speak to us individually. He speaks to us individually through his word. And then at the conclusion of that book we call the Bible, he says, do not add any words to this book, nor take away any that have been spoken in this book lest you find the judgments throughout all the scriptures fall upon you. So you think God has a, a concern and a care for his book? So my question to us this morning is, and it's to you, and it's to me as well, just because I stand up here and preach or teach to you does not mean I am separated from these things that you also are challenged with. 
nor am I saying that just to appease you. I have my own battles I fight each and every week in this Christian faith, in the balance and understanding and comprehension of joy and suffering. So what are we going to do? What are you going to do? What am I going to do? This day, this new year, every day and every new year, are we going to take this book and ask God to open the eyes of our heart that we might see the glimpses of truth he has for thee and to place in our hearts that wonderful key that does unlock and set us free by his Holy Spirit divine. We cannot bring the fullness of glory to God unless we put the time, the commitment, and the conviction to be in his word, to be of his word, to be hearing his word, and to be doing his word. God's already heard all the excuses there is. There's no more. And there will be none when Jesus Christ returns. And as I go through the scriptures and have read through the scriptures and studied through the scriptures over the years and have been blessed by people who taught me the scriptures years ago, mentors who guided and directed me, and I still, still have a hunger and thirst for God's word, not because I'm Paul Jenkins. No. It's there. It's there for you. It's there for you. And it still remains there for me. If you're committed. And if you're convicted. And if you seek to understand and to know the treasures of all eternity that we just read in Ephesians chapter 1. So my text for you this morning is in Jeremiah chapter 6. But as we get to that in Jeremiah chapter 6, of course, obviously, this is an Old Testament setting. The prophet Jeremiah dealt with the exiles. The exiles were the Jewish people that God had chosen, called them to his law and to his obedience to him, and they failed miserably. And so God exiled them, took them out of their country and brought them into another country. And then at that point of time, God promised and made a covenant because of his love to bring them back. Let's read an article today, not just based on this text, but based on the whole book of Jeremiah. And it was entitled, God the God of second chances. And if you look at the Old Testament, how many times in different epochs and periods from the wilderness to the birth of Jesus Christ did God relent and show love and mercy to an obstinate, stiff-necked, 
hard-hearted people that he had given all the blessings to. It's a great picture of our God, and it's a great reality of our God. It is who our God is. And then we come to the book of Matthew where it says, For you and for me to go, therefore, to all the nations and tell them, the glorious story of Jesus Christ. How can you tell this story if you do not know it? And you can only know it through this book. What are you doing with this book? What am I doing with this book? It is the words of God. And as Dr. Steve Lawson said, when the Bible speaks, God speaks. He has given us no new revelation. He is not coming down from heaven and meeting people and talking to them and giving them tablets of stone for the law and different new revelations about build this church and do this and do that. It's complete. Right here. It's new to some and it's old to many of us. And that's the beauty of it. New cars break down, wear out. Somebody's going to beat Tide Soap and figure out a new pod, you know, that cleans your clothes 100% wider. And all the newness that we look for, the new resolutions and all these new things, they're going to pass away. But this book will be with us forever. And we are called to set our mind upon it. We are called to look to it. We are called and told that all of the scriptures are inspired by God and therefore they're good for reproof, for teaching and for that which we need in this life or understanding. Faith comes from hearing and hearing comes from the word of God, Paul wrote to the Romans. How can you explain your faith to yourself or to anyone else if you don't understand it from this book. See, Christianity is not just a gift God bequeaths upon those people that he brings out of darkness into life and then leaves them there. You look throughout all the scriptures and we're called. We're called, we're set apart to go, to tell, to do. And that's not just the missionaries across the world, that's to us in our workplace, in our home, in our neighborhood, and wherever we may be. But how can we tell the story if we don't know it? Or how can we tell the story correctly if we have not studied it? How can you excel in your position at your work or your business or wherever it may be, whether a school teacher, a plumber, a pathologist, if you do not continue to understand and to know and to gain all the knowledge you can to be not only the best, but to be valuable within that position? Same whole true, same thing holds true with this word. 
Because if you do not know, when Paul wrote to the Colossians, he said, then you'll be blown away by every elemental preaching and philosophical teaching of the world. And you won't, you will lose your anchoring and your mooring. And you will not know unless you know here what to believe and why to believe it. So he tells us in many of the epistles he wrote, you, you and me, see to it that you are not caught by the culture of this world, by the philosophies of the world, by the vain principalities of the world, rather than the truths and the riches that are found in Jesus Christ. You find the first very easy. You click on ABC, NBC, CBS, OEC, Fox, whatever it may be, and you will find the subtlety of your greatest enemy. Because in it, you will find nothing more than few facts and figures, mostly distorted and mostly construed toward what the society wants or believes or is holding right now. And if we don't know in the church, if we as individuals don't bound ourselves upon the scriptures, if we don't pray and ask God to give us understanding and open the eyes of our hearts so that our soul will know and that we can stand firm against the temptations, against the cultures of society, against the foolishness that now says the government approves abortion, and that you cannot start speaking about things related to uh, Christianity because Christians are intolerable and therefore you know every uh, young man and woman that want to live together can live together because you know everybody in society is doing it. It's okay. It must be acceptable. If the culture's doing it, it must be okay. But you have to ask yourself the question. What does God say about it? What does God's word say about it? And so in this vortex of society that we live in now, ours is not to shake our head and say, what's come of this world? Ours is to say, look who has come into this world and tell them the story of Jesus Christ. Because as Christians, we ought to know from this book, we ought to know from even a, the sinful ways of our own selves previous to the gift of salvation that this world is going this way. That should not be a surprise to us. What should be a surprise to us is when the church succumbs to it. And when you read all the statistics today, whether it be by the Barna Group, Lifeway Group, whoever does the research, there's no difference between people who do not profess to be Christians and the Christian church in almost every factor. Sexual immorality by living together out of marriage, divorce, and on and on and on you go. Why is that? 
And you see the churches now folding to the doctrines, to the basic teachings of the scriptures, and succumbing to the ways of the world. Why is that? Church is not being taught. Because some of the things that the teachers and the preachers have to convey to the church, they don't want to hear. And the next week, if they hear them the first week, there may be a lot of vacancy in the pews. But it needs to be heard. It needs to be told. So now we take the church and we melt down the beauty of God's word and the truths and the precepts and the decrees and the ordinances and the statutes and the doctrines and we say, well, we've got to modify it, you know, so that we can, we can be like the world and not be offensive. Was Jesus Christ offensive? Oh, to the world that existed then, yes. Did he... Was his whole goal to be offensive? No. It was to tell him that he was the kingdom that has come. And in him there was life. And what did they do? They crucified him. This country is becoming less and less tolerable of the you's and the me's. That we need to be more honoring to the Lord in what we know and standing firm in what we're going to tell them and sharing with them what the story of the Bible contains. What's happening in the church is probably well put here by Dr. Burke Parsons, who is a pastor, senior pastor out in Florida. Melinda and I have had the fortune of being in that church a number of times and being under the teaching. And what he is saying here, this is just off the press in the last few weeks, the reality of your truth and my truth is starting to emerge in the church rather than let's look together and see what is the truth that God's word is teaching. I have my already preconceived ideals. You know, this is the way it was. This is the way my parents, my grandparents, this is the way the community has always believed. I'm not knocking. But have you challenged it to be right? This is the way I perceive it. Have you challenged your heart to see what the word says? Or do you just accept it because it's convenient to you? And so what has emerged out of this is what they, those more conservative men who are writing for the defense of the faith say is this thing called conceptualization. Concept with an ism on the end of it. You know, any word you take and put an ism on the end of it becomes a, a belief system. And it says where well, you're having conversation and one person says, well, my God's not that way. Your God's not that way. And I shared this in the Bible Sunday school this morning, Bible class that I was teaching, you know. So Steve says he believes his God is a certain way, and Don says he believes his God is not that way. So either A, Steve is right, Don is wrong, or B, Don is right, Steve is wrong, or they're both wrong. Well, 
We can't have multiple truths. You can have only one truth. And Charles Haddon Spurgeon said it the best. Prince of Preachers back in the 1800s. He said, there's no greater hate than mankind has for that than that of the absolute authority of God's word over them. Think about it. What did Adam and Eve reject of God? Hath God said. When God spoke to them, do not, gave you everything, do not partake of the tree. God spoke to them, and they rejected it. Mankind naturally rejects God's word because we don't like in our natural state of sin to have that absolute authority dictating, directing, guiding, saving, or condemning our lives. So here's what conceptualization is. Here's what's emerging in the church today. Here's what's filtering through. Here's are the things that we need to understand and know about God's word because of the subtlety of it. It looks good, but we need to protect ourselves from it. It's the same thing that happens decade after decade after century after century within the church. And if you don't know, you'll be sucked into it likewise. Postmodern world, Christianity, when they engage with people who disagree, they want to get along. You can engage with people from God's word. You can engage with fellow brothers and sisters in Christ from God's word. And you may have a difference of understanding on it. The ideal at that point is not to start swinging fists and kicking shin bones. It's starting to go back into that word and say, let's see. Let's look. Let's study together. Let's understand. And even if it's individually, then God, you teach me and see if my thinking on this is right. Conceptualizations provides people with a way to create their own personally conceived realities of truth so they can believe whatever they want to believe and deny whatever they choose to deny in accordance with their own concept of truth. But there is only one truth. Even if their own conceived reality has no basis in what is in fact reality. Do you see some of that on TV today in the news and certain political parties have detached themselves completely from reality and have, even when all the facts are presented to a person, here's step one, two, three, four, five, and the science proves it just from our standpoint. And they still reject it and deny it. Why? Does not fit my God. It may fit your God, but it doesn't fit my God. I had this conversation. I was speaking to her about when God's 
allowed the Jewish people to take over the land and to go in and to annihilate, kill all of their enemy. And the parting shot there was, my God, it's not that way. Okay, then we need to look here to see what these words convey. But that's our problem for many of us. The commitment and the conviction to find out. While conceptualization has manifested itself in devastating ways in the world, it is providing to be downright deadly in the church. We see this way of thinking most abundantly in the way people speak of God. It has become common for people to speak of my God and your God, saying things in defense of their view of whom their God is and what their God would do or couldn't do. Uh, and, uh, but since we are not entitled to our own version of the truth, our own version of the truth, we are entitled to the truth as God teaches us it from his word because he has spiritually told us it. But not entitled to our own version of the truth, we are not entitled to our version of God. We are not entitled to our own version of what God does or who God is. We are to follow this one true God who is Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And this, we are to know and worship this God and not the God of our own making we must know about God. We must know what we affirm and what we deny about what God is, for there is only one God, and we cannot create him in our own image or according to our own conceptualized reality of who we think he should be. But we do that. And sometimes we do that without even realizing or knowing. Writer in Proverbs says, as a man thinketh, so is he. As a man thinketh, so is he. Paul wrote to the Romans and said, for those who live according to the flesh, they set their mind on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit, they set their mind on the things of the spirit. One brings death. The other brings life. And this is not an intellectual question or is it an academic question? It's just a question to you and to me from the heart. What do you know about the Bible? What do you care about the Bible? What have you put into the treasure of earth and eternity? Are you going to love it and be a part of it or squander it? It is God's word to all the mankind, past, present, and future, and it holds everyone accountable. Everyone accountable. Let me read you this from about the Bible, about the beauty of the Bible, the unity of the Bible. 
the uniformity of the Bible. This short passage here from Dr. Larson's book, Lawson's book, excuse me, on the the moment of truth. He bases this book on that question that Pontius Pilate asked Christ. What did he ask Christ? Or what did he say rhetorically? What is truth? Satirically, like there couldn't be any truth, that it couldn't be answered. And so now he's expanding in this book, The Moment of Truth, and he says the perfect unity of the Bible also testifies to its divine origin, being God. The more we studied the Bible, the more we are impressed with its amazing unity and extraordinary diversity. The wide range of diversity in the scripture is seen in the fact that it is made up of 66 books. Have you read through all those? Written over a period of 1,600 years. Over 40 different authors, three different continents, three different languages. It's Aramaic, Hebrew, and Greek. Consider the diverse background of these authors. Two were kings, three were priests, one was a physician, two were fishermen, two were shepherds, one was a Pharisee, former Pharisee, two were statesmen, one was a tax collector, one was a military general, one was a scribe, one was a cupbearer, and one was a sheep herder. The literary range, prophecy, proverbs, parables, discourse, gospel, epistles, songs, legal writings, narratives, countries, three continents, this book was written over. But the given life of many men that God and women that God had chosen to be a part of the scriptures. 1,189 chapters, 3,100 verses, 700,000 words, and 3.5 million letters. Yet despite the complex diversity, the Bible speaks with a perfect unity that defies human explanation, other than to conclude that the Bible is the word of God. It comes together as one book, one author, teaches one plan of salvation, one people of God, one story of human history, one problem of mankind, one solution for this problem, one standard of morality, one design for the family, one chief object of its message, Jesus Christ. And it speaks with one voice. How else could we come to the conclusion than it is the divine word of God? Puritan writer John Owen said that although we are no longer under sin's dominion in this life, speaking about people that have been regenerated and saved and brought out of darkness into the light of Jesus Christ. On, although we are no longer under sin's dominion in this life, we are never free from its corrupting influence. The lingering temptations of that dark domain remains within us. It does me. But I'm going to let you answer that yourself. Satan will do all in his power to spoil 
one's enjoyment of God's gift to them in Christ Jesus and to hamper our usefulness in the work of his kingdom. We are a busy society. We are a busy people. But we are a needy people. We need to know our God and to know his word. So Jeremiah chapter 6 verse 16 gives us some insight into the old versus the new. The people had disobeyed God. The people that he had chosen. God had chosen the Jewish people. The Old Testament beauty of that is it's a type of the church of the New Testament church today. And he said about them, and I will bring you up to speed, these people have done an appalling and horrible thing, and they have done it in this land. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule with their own authority. And my people love it so. Behold, their ears are closed, and they cannot listen. Behold, the word of the Lord has become a reproach to them, and they have no delight in it. Do we hunger and thirst for the righteousness of God and delight in the truths of his word and abide in them and live by them and pursue them and commit ourselves to them every day? Everyone is greedy for grain. And from the prophet even to the priest, everyone deals falsely. And they have healed the brokenness of my people superficially. He's talking about the prophets and the priests. Have brought lies and deceptions and different concepts into them. And has healed them superficially by saying, peace, peace, but there is no peace. Verse 16, thus says the Lord, Jeremiah 6, 16. Stand by the ways and see and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and you shall find rest for your souls. And I even set watchmen over you, speaking to Israel, saying, listen, to the sound of the trumpet. But they said, we will not listen. Therefore hear, O nations, and know, O congregations, what is among them. Hear, O people of the earth, I am bringing disaster upon this people. The end of their fruit is evil because they have not listened to my word. Ancient words of truth. Ancient words of truth. The old ways. The old paths. This book given to us so that we might know and live and be blessed. 
Stand by the ways. Stand, as Jeremiah was saying in that first verse. Stand by the ways and see and ask for the ancient paths. The text I read this morning out of Ephesians chapter was that the eyes of my heart are related to seeing. How will you not know what comes into your heart without hearing it in your mind when you read it or hearing it read aloud? Open the eyes of my heart, Lord, that I might know your way. What is God's way? What did Christ say? I am the way. I am the truth. And I am the life. And no one comes to my Father but through me. And then he says, go, seek and ask, see and ask, ask, ask God for our understanding of his word. Pursue God that we may know in prayer and in study. And then it says, walk, walk in it. We're called to stand by the way. We're called to pray. We're called to pursue God, to ask for these ancient paths. And then it says where the good way is, and you will find rest for your soul. Paul wrote the Corinthians. He said we need to be on alert and stand firm in the faith. And what is our faith built upon? the grace of God in Jesus Christ. That's the story. And then we're called to trust that this word and see it and ask for it and understand it because the psalmist wrote that the sum of thy word is truth and every one of its everlasting ordinances are eternal. And then we're called to walk in it. Walk in a way that is pleasing to the Lord. As I come toward our conclusion of this morning, let me read the walk in it for us. Therefore, you be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us an offering and a sacrifice to God, a sweet aroma. But do not let immorality or any impurity or greed even be named among you, for it's not proper among God's people. There must be no filthiness, silly talk, or coarse jesting which are not fitting, rather have hearts of gratitude. For this you know with certainty that no immoral, impure person or covetous person who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ. And let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not be partakers with them, for you were formerly a walking in darkness, but now... You are walking in the light of the Lord as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists of all goodness and righteousness and God's truth in trying to learn what is pleasing to God.
How do we learn what is pleasing to God? Right here. Commitment, conviction, belief, and the wonderful joy to know the story and to be able to share it with others. Because there's not much time as we understand time given to us on this earth, is there? Those of us who have passed a few milestones of age look back and say, wow, seemed just like a week ago. You know, I was a 16-year-old doing something crazy. Seems like only a few weeks ago, you know, we were having children. That was many moons ago. So I just entreat you this morning from a story in the Old Testament to live a certain way and to understand, not to frighten you. I love the old story that Dr. J.C. Ryle, 16th century Puritan, would tell his congregation. He said, I say these hard things to you. I say these things to you because I love you and I care for your salvation. He said, that's what a true friend is. A true friend will tell you the whole truth, not just a portion you want to hear. David and Jonathan were friends. You remember the story from 1 Samuel? Young David was being pursued by Saul. Saul had been, been dethroned from God's ruling kingdom. Saul was jealous of David, and Saul was trying, along with a garrison of men, to kill young David. And young David and Jonathan were kindred brothers. Jonathan loves King David, or David at that time, and David loved Jonathan. And Jonathan's father was the man trying to kill him, King Saul. So in a clandestine way, they met one day when David was supposed to be at the court of the winter meetings. This all in the book of Samuel. He was supposed to be there at the table, and when Saul found that he was not there, he went into a rage and went out to find him to kill him. So Jonathan got word to David, and David and Jonathan met in a hiding place. And Jonathan revealed his daddy's, King Saul, plans to take his life. That's the literal context of the scriptures. Literally, he was going to kill David. I place this now in the spiritual context of where we should be. Because you know what David said to Jonathan? My life is hardly but one step from death. That's how we ought to live. For the kingdom of God. For the glory of God. Committed to God. Committed and convicted to the word of God. So that we will know how to ask. Know how to walk. 
know how to live as if we only have one step left in our life. So our soul may find rest in our God. Let's pray. Ancient words of truth, O Lord, saving me and saving you. What a joy for us to hear these words this morning from Jeremiah and from the rest of your scriptures. And they ring so very true to us. And for some of us, they may be new words. To others, they're words of antiquity. But they are your words. And we desire to know them, to love them, to be committed to praying and studying them, and to walk in a manner that brings honor and glory to your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name I pray. Amen. As we prepare for communion, we're going to...